Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose contributions to pop culture discourse have not only been significant in the world of queer horror, but I believe crucial to contemporary genre discussion overall. The creator and writer behind the popular and enduring Final Girl blog, her byline has also appeared in such places as Rue Morgue and AMC. A prolific and talented artist whose work has been delighting Fright fans for years, she is the author and illustrator of Death Count, a marvelous book featuring illustrations of all the deaths in the Friday the 13th film franchise. What's more, she's the filmmaker behind such horror projects as Ludlow and Buyer Beware Soulmates, which she not only wrote and directed, but also shot and produced. You can hear her each week as the co-host of her own queer horror podcast, Gay Lords of Darkness. Please welcome to the show, true horror renaissance woman and the internet's favorite final girl, Stacey Ponder. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi, Stacey. Hi. <laughs> I'm so excited to finally have you here. It's exciting to be here. It's exciting to be here, for sure. <laughs> I'll be at in this odd time of uh, of social distance. No kidding. What a strange, I mean, you know, putting it mildly, it's, uh, it's a strange time out there. It really is. And I think that, you know, as, as genre nerds such as we, I, I occasionally step back from it all and think about how oddly science fiction novel this all is. Uh, because we're living it, you don't really, on a day-to-day basis, think of how sort of bizarre that like at the beginning of March, we did not yet anticipate a world where our government was going to say, you know, maybe stay home, but like for real stay home. Right. Yes. And while you're at it, you know, do a shot of Clorox to help. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because I feel like for the last, I don't know, let's say three years or so, we've re- it's really felt like we're at the beginning we're at the credit sequence of the apocalyptic film, like the, you know, the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead, the credit sequence where it's like, how did the world get like this? And you see the newspaper headlines and wars happening. It Like we've been in that place for three years and now it's like, it's. You know. No, it's, it's wild that you say that because, you know, I was taking my government allowed walk the other day and, uh, <laughs> I happened to be out uh, in my neighborhood. I live in Studio City here in Los Angeles. And on the sidewalk was this rolled up newspaper that must have been there for weeks because it was weathered like, you know, it has just been left there. And it was folded in such a way that the headline was facing up and it was tattered and yellowed. And it said, COVID comes to the valley. And if you had had placed that prop in a horror movie, I would have said to you, that's like kind of on the nose. Right. And yet there it was on the sidewalk. And I had to laugh. I took a photo of it, which maybe I'll drop in the comments of this of this art, uh, episode when we post it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's some George Romero shit, right? That's the dead walk. That's the beginning of Day of the Dead, right there. Which is exactly exciting in a, in its own way, I suppose. But <laughs> well, it, it it depends where in the mall we are in Day of the Dead. Right. <laughs> Well, you know, here we are talking about horror and the the beginning credits of a horror movie, so we might as well start the show. Uh, and I'll kick off the show with the same first question I ask every guest, which is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why are genre audiences drawn to it? But why horror? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Just nice and succinct. I like it. <laughs> um... <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, why not horror? Horror, it's just, it's its almost hard to sort of qualify it because it's just been a part of my life for almost my entire life since I've been watching movies. Um, mm-hmm. So it's its my relate, but at the, at the same time, my relationship with horror is kind of always changing. It waxes and wanes. There are times, you know, depending on what's happening in the genre, where uh, right. you take a little break, maybe, and say, okay, the trends are not for me right now. So you step back from it for a while, or, you know, you watch something particularly abhorrent, and you say, why do I like horror movies? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like this point, though, because we often talk about our devotion to this genre, but I think long-term fans and long-term contributors and people who have lived in this space for a long time your relationship with the genre does change. It, it is not necessarily 
that compulsion that you had when you were renting videotapes when you were a teenager, uh, it, it constantly grows. And, and you say you've noticed that over the years. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, my tastes in like what I enjoy from the genre has changed. I haven't, you know, there's so many subgenres um, in right. horror. And it's like the stuff I was watching for a teenager, I like to watch some of it as a sort of nostalgia thing or things from that era. But the gross out extreme stuff that you go to rent, you know, when you're a teenager because it's taboo and it's so much, it feels, you know, illicit and all of that. Like that kind of stuff just doesn't interest me as a viewer anymore, <laughs> you know. Do, do you think that does come with age, though? The more trauma that we live through in the world, the less we want to engage with the overly outrageous versions of it? I think so. I think so. I think it's it's what you know. And if if people if that's all they like from the genre their entire lives, like more power to you. Um, but I think you know teenagers tend to and the younger crowds tend to be drawn to that kind of naughty sick stuff, you know. And also the genre itself evolves. Um, you know, some of the films that I get to watch now really weren't around when I was a teenager. You know, the kind of protagonists that we have, the kind of stories that people are telling now weren't, they just literally didn't exist when I was a kid yeah. or when I was a teenager. So, And I, I think, too, that is, is true because the, the genre itself is always evolving in ways that maybe the mainstream doesn't always recognize. One thing that we talk about here a lot is how when you interact with people out in, in the world, the, the air quotes, normal folk, who um, tell quick, are quick to blanket statement, oh, I don't like horror movies. But you, what's that mean? It usually has to do with some prevailing notion of what a horror movie is, some cultural idea that we are aware is not representative of the genre as a whole. Right. Yeah, hor horror is not any, you know, just one thing. It is a... right. A big rainbow of flavors and subgenres, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, especially as a, a female viewer, I have gotten that from other women at times who don't, you know, women who don't like horror and think it's only misogynist um, and hateful towards women, and it's only gruesomely violent and all of this. That you know, how can you watch that kind of stuff? And you've had to explain so many times that. You know, there are PG rated horror movies <laughs> without a drop of right. blood in them, and they're still fantastic. It's just, you know, and no two horror fans are alike either. You go to a convention and it's like, ask two different people what kind of movies they like, and they'll probably have two different answers, you know? That's true. Now, you, you tapped into something that I'm, I'm interested in because, you know, I'm sure you have gotten this question a lot uh, in terms of, you said, how horror fans relate to women who like horror and how often in your career have people been shocked that you are a woman who likes horror, because that's a stereotype. That's I feel like a lot of the, the women in my life who are in the genre have to combat constantly. Yes. Oh, for sure. It's, it's getting better. I don't feel like quite such an anomaly anymore, but um, particularly in, you know, the early days of final girl, which was like 2005, 2006, it's like there weren't that many women online writing about horror movies. Um, and as fans, we weren't taken seriously. And so it started to evolve with like, you know, well-meaning sort of, here's 10 women in horror that you should read or you should watch or, you know, here's, did right. you know that women can direct horror movies? And then the list was, <laughs> it was always like, Catherine Bigelow, Near Dark, like the same old names. And right. I think we've moved past that now, which is the goal, you know, I think. Well, and I think that speaks to the point you made earlier about how some of the movies that exist now were not even in, in the consciousness a few years ago or were not the kind of movies that we used to see. And it's not because I think the concepts or the artists weren't there, but there was such a gatekeeping about what could be made. Or if, does that make sense? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially when it comes to um, 
you know, movies with actual financial backing, you know, outside the indie system, it's like they just want to make money. And so if there's one movie that can break through and make money, then more of them will follow. And I think, you know, something like uh, Get Out is a good example, which is a huge blockbuster hit. And so people can say, oh, my God, will people actually watch movies with people of color in them? Oh, okay. Well, let's make some more of those, you know? And the thing that's endlessly vexing for anybody who exists in a marginalized space is how much is put on those movies. You know, what Jordan Peele did with Get Out is marvelous and it's a great movie and I really love it. But I also feel like he probably had this extra burden placed upon him that was the unstated, well, if this doesn't do well, it's not just you who may not get to make another, you know, big budget black horror movie. It's a lot of people. And that does not happen in the straight cis white male space. Like there are how many blockbuster filmmakers have we seen that continue to fail upwards? They'll make a a movie that tanks and that's it. And they get another one. They get another $400 million movie. I always think about how anytime a, a, a female led superhero movie comes out, the world acts like this is it. All the eggs are in one basket. And if it fails, we can't have another female-led superhero movie. But how many superhero movies have failed that were led by men? More men, male superhero movies have, have been box office disasters than female-led superhero movies. How come we didn't stop making those? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, they, well, it's like, where are they placing the blame? You know, it's exactly. it's, it's if, if uh, a female-led superhero movie doesn't meet expectations, it's because it's female-led. Whereas if the male-led superhero film doesn't meet expectations, it's like, well, I guess it just wasn't the time for that film or whatever. Like everybody in it from the actors to the directors to everybody is allowed to continually fail upward. And women, minorities of all stripes, you know, everybody who's the other basically has one chance to prove themselves. (laughs) And if it fails, then not only do you not get another chance, you know, the people with the money aren't going to take a chance on something similar. So true. Well, let's talk about taking chances and, you know, blazing trails in the space and go back to the beginning. We talked about how you launched Final Girl somewhere around 2005, almost 15 years ago. Can you even believe it? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy because, I mean, I just turned 30, so I was real young when I started it. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm 115. Um, when... When did your interest, you you must have always been interested in these movies, as you said, it's always been part of your DNA, but when did you decide that fandom wasn't enough, that, you know, I want to be involved in this somehow and and write about it? And were you always interested in writing? No, Um, both of the ideas kind of happened at once. You know, I mean, I, I grew up, my mom especially was big into horror movies, so I've just watched them all my life and knew a shit ton about them. Um, especially slasher movies. Uh, And I was uh, working on comics and I had a friend who was one of several writers for a horror blog. It was like a general horror blog. And I read that and those were the days of the internet where it was like, you know, there was no Facebook, none of that. It was like you read each individual blog and you found out about new blogs by links on other blogs that you were already reading. And so I just noticed that there was a small circle of horror blogs and they were covering pretty much everything except for slasher movies. And I just thought, this looks like a fun thing to do. I know a lot about slasher movies. I'm going to start a blog about slasher movies. And so I just kind of jumped in and joined the circle. I hadn't written anything like that for public consumption. Hadn't formalized any of my thoughts about horror movies ever before. Um, I just kind of did it and went from there. And it was, it was a good time. So. And when, when did you first notice that Final Girl was picking up an audience? Um, it, it was kind of a slow, steady, and then rapid incline, sort of, because Mm -hmm. it it could literally, something like getting featured on bloggers, blogs of note at that time could garner you a huge new readership. 
um, it was that's the thing is now it's you know social media and the algorithms and new sites have a really hard time of finding an audience because it's like you can get buried because of the algorithms you know but this just right. I don't know it just everybody would link to everybody and everybody was reading everybody's stuff and it got mentioned in Rumorg probably in the first year or two maybe that it was out they just they used to do a roundup of horror blogs and they mentioned it and that really helped so that's awesome and to think you know 15 years later you're still doing it and i i i wonder uh you know you had said that this wasn't something that you had initially thought about doing you came from the world of comic books and now you've carved such a niche out for yourself where you have written for places like Rue Morgue and you have written about horror for places like amc.com and, and other, other uh, publications like that. Can you even believe that you, your career has, has kind of launched from that, you know, that, that this is where the path went? It's, uh, I can't believe it. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not anything I anticipated and it's not anything that I was going after when I started it. I started it purely because I just wanted to talk about these movies and this blog thing looked like fun. Um, right. So it was purely for the love of it with no ulterior motives. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, and then, at, you know, at one point um, I wrote a review of the the Friday the 13th reboot that came out in, I don't know, 2009, whatever year that was. And right. uh, Jovanka Vukovic was the editor of Rumorg at that time. And she had read the review and was like, hey, come write for us. It just sort of all came to me, which made me feel like I was on some kind of right path, I guess. So well, that's got to be gratifying to know that your audience has your, your work has reached that kind of audience that it keeps propelling forward in different ways. And, now, and, and you must still love it because you keep up with it. Oh, sure. It's, you know, I, I'm grateful that anybody reads any of my stuff <laughs> ever. Like even today, I'm like, if five people read it and like it, then that's good enough for me or don't like it. I've gotten plenty of, I mean, everybody who's on the internet gets hate mail. Um, sure, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's still, I don't know. I, I, I put in the work, um, but I am extremely grateful that anyone pays any attention to it for sure. So. And you mentioned your beginnings in the world of art. And so even though writing as, as a young person was maybe not on your horizon or your periphery until you began the blog, tell me about your, your work in the world of art, because your art is so amazing. I have several <laughs> Stacy Ponder pieces at my home. <laughs> Oh. Including one of my favorite coffee mugs of a zombie versus a shark with your artwork on it, <laughs> uh, and and so tell me about that. Was was that always something that was was part of your life? Um, even that, like I guess I'm pretty slow on the uptake in terms of myself and where I should be uh, focusing my attentions. Because even that didn't really occur to me until way later. I went into college as a French major. Oh, I, I really like speaking French. <laughs> and, then I, and then I sort of transferred over to linguistics. And then, you know, but I've always been artistic or, you know, it's always been a hobby. And then finally it was like, maybe you should go to art school. So that was another like, hey, I guess I'll give this a try. And I've, I've moved away from art. I only, it is strictly hobby now. Um, the Death Count book is really the last thing that I did and there's there'll probably be more in the future but it's not anything that I'm focusing on I guess right but you did you did work on a number of comic books including you were an inker on blood rain right yeah <laughs> yeah ah, blood rain yeah <laughs> good times <laughs> which came it was uh, not from the movie like uh, that was a video game first and then a comic and then of course the infamous Uva Bowl film written by lesbian icon Guinevere Turner we love Guinevere. Yeah. So it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's talk about Death Count then, since this was your most uh, recent uh, kind of uh, 
where your worlds collide, where you as an artist and you as a writer put this book together and you got to do, uh, well, not you got to do, you, you, you chose to, to illustrate every death in the Friday the 13th franchise. Where did that begin? And what, what made you decide to do it? Because that's a lot of death. That's a lot of death. <laughs> it's a lot of death. And I left out some films too. I left out the reboot and I left out uh, Freddy versus Jason. Um, right. As I said in the book, I really just wanted to, like, to me, Friday the 13th is just the Paramount 8, the first first eight films. Um, right. That really constitutes the franchise to me. But I went all the way up through Jason X. Um, I just kind of started doing it one day. I was like, this might be an interesting thing to do. And I so I did, like, loose pencil sketches of the first two films, I think. Right. And, and then I thought, you know, I might as well just go for it and really do all of them. And so then I started over and did them all in color. And uh, then I ended up writing for the book and all of this. And it's it just it was an incredibly interesting project for me personally to undertake, to really examine these films that I've seen so many times. Um, yeah, you you probably really, really uh got into the nitty gritty of, of having to revisit all of those to make, to make this work. Yeah. You start to notice the patterns <laughs> or the <laughs> lack of patterns. And it's like, it really, I've always loved the Friday the 13th films, but it really reignited my love of that franchise, that crazy, crazy franchise. Um, because even the films that aren't good, like there's not a whole bunch of them that are actually good movies. Sure. Um, but they really took a lot of chances with almost every installment, even when you just think like, oh, my God, it's another Friday the 13th film. Like they tried new, interesting things. And a lot of those things were failures, but I applaud them for trying for sure. And readers of, of your blog may know this, but do you have a favorite of the entire franchise, the Paramount 8? Favorite film? Um, probably yeah. overall, I would say part two. Um, and it's, is, is that because of Ginny or? It's hugely because of, I mean, Ginny is pretty much the best final girl, I think. And also I think Baghead Jason is my favorite iteration of Jason, for sure. I just love the sort of backwoods horror aspect of it. If, I think it's a scary, I think it's one of the scariest entries in the franchise. It's fun. Um, but I, I have a lot of love for one, two, three and five actually. So <laughs> five, you know, it's interesting because not a lot of people list five. I'm a big fan of five as well, but I, I think that also I like it because it is an outlier of, of the, the original eight. There's some black sheep quality to it. Oh, sure. I mean, it's bonkers. It's totally bonkers. Um, and I know people were angry when the mask came off and it was like who's that guy oh oh it's the paramount oh, okay sure roy okay right. whatever i think that, that made a lot of fans really angry but i love that they just kind of tried to do something new and strange with it and i mean you know roy carries a photo of himself in his wallet so <laughs> that's, that's why it's one of my favorite films i think you know, I don't think Roy gets enough due in the pantheon of horror slashers. Uh, he had a child whose existence he completely denied until that child died and decided that vengeance was his only recourse. Exactly. Um, what an icon, really. <laughs> yeah. He is an under, he's definitely an underrated slasher killer. Everybody thought, like, he did a good enough job that everybody thought it was Jason through the whole thing, so... What does that tell you? So fine. It's not actually Jason. Who cares? Right. He's Jason in spirit, honestly. Exactly. Um, and one thing I've always loved about the Friday the 13th franchise is it's one of the only big horror franchises where the lead killer is not always the killer that you expect or is not, you know, the, to the, the tentpole killer. Because there's at least two movies of eight that Jason is not responsible for what the shenanigans are. Everybody just, oh, Jason, Jason, Jason. It's like, let's talk about Pamela Voorhees. My God, a middle-aged woman is getting all of this done. Fantastic, you know? Uh, honestly, I mean, Jason takes a lot of credit for work that was done for him. Or, you know, on, <laughs> on 
on the backs of others, really. Exactly. Exactly. Like, if I would be, I mean, give me Mrs. Voorhees any day, for sure. You know, I am here for any grand dame of the Broadway stage that takes a turn to the world of slasher and does it fabulously in a cable knit sweater. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Love Betsy Palmer. Love her. Do you- do you have a favorite death that you illustrated? And what was the trickiest death to illustrate? Oh, man. They got really tricky towards the end because the deaths get really kind of crazy, but also because of the MPAA, et cetera, et cetera, they were often obscured. So the character would die in the shadows or something like that. And so it's it was difficult for me to illustrate them because it's like, I can't see what's going on here at all. Um, so the earlier ones where they were really explicit and it was just like, somebody gets their throat cut. Like those were, it sounds so crazy, but like those were more fun. Like the more blood, the better. <laughs> <laughs> Especially since the the it's a really cartoony style that I employed. So those were really fun um oh boy i mean i i don't i'm not a fan of part eight jason takes manhattan but i do love it when julius gets his head punched off (laughs) it's just (laughs) i mean it's that's iconic to me you know but it is interesting too how many of the deaths are really fun in context of the film but taken out just feel very grim uh because I really, really like the disco death in uh, part eight. I'm not a big fan of eight either, but Kelly, who checking out on a, a disco dance floor on what I is, is supposed to be a high school field trip. Very, very confusing. Yeah. Um, but that seems very 80s. Yeah. And then like when you just take it out of context that she's just being strangled, I'm like, oh, that's not that's not as fun as I remember it on VHS. Yeah. Know. Part part eight. That was another thing that I noticed is that like while the deaths themselves became less explicit, especially part eight, there's a certain there's kind of a meanness to it like that. The Jason takes Manhattan. Jason really sort of makes his victims suffer and will watch them suffering. Whereas before it was just, you know, stab, you're dead. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a really good point to the overall aesthetic of the film. I mean, I I know a lot of people complain about the boat ride and, and the kind of lack of Manhattan in Jason takes Manhattan, but it is a meaner movie. And I think that there is a sense of fun that works through the first seven that is, sort of missing from part eight in in exchange for this sort of anger that doesn't work a hundred percent i i agree with that completely completely i mean it's it's the it's just such an interesting the series is so fascinating to really examine from beginning to end (laughs) you know there was such a simplicity like the first victims in the first film were just stabbed in the stomach, which is not to say that they didn't suffer. Sure. (laughs) But it's like, you know, victims one and two are just stabbed with a knife in the stomach. And then the last victim in Jason X ends up uh, burning up an atmospheric (laughs) re-entry because he was (laughs) holding on to Jason Voorhees as they re-enter the atmosphere of Earth 2. And it's like, what the hell has happened over the course of 30 years, you know? Well, I think it's truly an example of how the franchise became victim to this sort of juggernaut that it helped create. At the beginning of the 80s and the end of the 70s, Slasher movies weren't very extreme because, you know, merely the idea of stabbing someone was horrific enough. And by the end of the cocaine uh, decade, where everything was kicked up to excess, we had to blow people's faces up and, you know, put them in sleeping bags. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, you know, John Carpenter's Halloween is so tame compared to this, this kind of stuff. And it's like, once, once you kind of go forward and raise the ante you can't really go back and so it's like 
you know, what are audiences? If Friday the 13th part eight was just full of stomach stabs, everybody would have been angry at that. It's like, no, we want to see, you know, electrocutions and getting heads punched off. And where's the toxic waste? And, and, you know, and Jason X, it's like, yeah, freeze them and then smash them into bits and the sleeping bag death and seven. It's just like, I mean, they're creative for sure, but I think that's what fans came to expect. So. It's true. Now, by upping the ante, though, do you think it sort of loses the plot at some point? Did it have a plot ever? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Stacy, I mean, that's the real thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, once you get to uh, Jason Goes to Hell and it's like, okay, so he's not just... I mean, what was Jason anyway in part two? You know, is he... right? it's what did they do with jason he dies and that's the thing is he was easily killed but then people kept bringing him back to life and it's like so okay so he's a zombie and then you get to part nine and it's like well actually he's more of a malevolent force as signified by this phallic worm thing that's gonna possess people it's like all right i mean kudos Uh, for uh you know going out on a limb i guess to have studio money and studio drugs. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that also speaks back to the uh, thing that you mentioned all the way at the beginning about how, you know, our taste in horror changes over time. But also probably that's because the things that we invest in change over time. I, I can see why you would still be attached to slasher movies of yesteryear, but maybe not to the uber gory things of now because they've just kept building on themselves till they got to a point where maybe that just doesn't appeal to you but the original still does right yeah the originals still have sort of i mean you know the sheen of my youth um and fond memories and that sort of thing and i find i find it interesting to go back and revisit some films that i even the ones that i thought i knew so well and see like you know, is there anything new I can glean from them? Is there a new way to look at this film and read into it? Um, it's right. an in- interesting exercise. But a brand new slasher movie where it's just people dying in horrible ways? Eh, I don't know. Maybe someday, but not right now. Maybe Thank someday. you. <laughs> yeah. um, before we move away from Friday the 13th, I do have to ask, have uh, any of the cast members of the Friday franchise seen your book? Do you know? Yes, actually, um, quite a few of them actually have. Um, I introduced it to Amy Steele um, and Adrian King has seen it. I know we had Adrian and Amy on a live, our first Gaylords of Darkness live show we did with Adrian and Amy. Um, They've both seen it. Uh, I've gotten messages from Judy Aronson, um, part four. Larry Zerner's seen it. all the dirt farmers from part five saw it. Ethel and her son. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah Voorhees from part five. Is like I get, I do get messages from people on social media and stuff. They get, I think they get a kick out of seeing themselves in that sort of cartoony format. So, And how cool for you too, that, you know, this is something that you really love and embarked on this, this love letter, you know, through your art and your work to know that it's reached the people who inspired you. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, what a treat. What an absolute treat. Because part of the goal of the book was to sort of shine a light on these characters that, like, we enjoy their death scenes, as strange as that sounds. Um, But the victims are quickly forgotten. In the later films, they don't even have names. You know, once the body body counts get up into the mid-20s, like 25 people are getting killed, it's like... Okay, that's boxer number two. He doesn't actually have a name, that sort of thing. So to really take the time and sort of shine the spotlight on the victims, um, for them to acknowledge it and get a kick out of it is, it's so great. I love it. Now, you mentioned reevaluating movies, and that's been a big portion of what you do on Final Girl. And we were just talking about a, a really major film franchise that, you know, even if you are just a tourist to the world of horror. Everybody knows Friday the 13th. But what 
would you say is a slasher film that through your work and your writing that you reevaluated that maybe is a deeper cut that you think people need to discover uh, and that you you rediscovered yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm going to have to, you'll have to cut out my pause while I think about it. <laughs> that's a really good question because that's something that we do um, on our show is sort of, you know, we've, we go through periods on the show where we look at older slasher movies and they're really, a lot of the older sort of, uh, sometimes when they would have a gay killer or something like hide and go shriek, right. um, you know, and you watch it when you're younger and you're like, oh, this is just homophobic or whatever. And you'd watch it again and it's like, well, actually... <laughs> sometimes the gay character is the most well-adjusted one you know um right um i would say maybe oh boy we just watched curtains recently oh the canadian uh the canadian slasher featuring yeah. leslie donaldson yeah. leslie donaldson um that one's pretty that movie is a bit of a mess but i love it um, it had a really troubled production, as you can tell, but it had a really troubled production. It started and stopped several times. Um, but it also, you know, has a great cast of women. And it's sort of a, uh, I mean, not to get trite, but it's, uh, there's a little bit of a Me Too statement in there, for Ooh. sure, of these women, you know, banding together and killing the asshole maverick director who takes advantage of all these young actresses um whereas you know the first hundred times i watched it i was just like i like the ice skating scene it's really scary <laughs> you know and then you watch it now and it's like oh maybe were they trying it's you never know what the filmmaker's intent is you know was were they trying to make a statement or not but this is what i'm getting out of it basically well, and it's always kind of interesting to revisit movies of yesteryear that we grew up with or are just discovering for the first time with the lens of now. And it, it, it's a tricky prospect, right, to ap apply, you know, the current conversation to something that was made 30 years ago. And yet it also shows how many problems persist or how some things haven't changed. So to have a Me Too message in this movie before... Uh, the phrase Me Too existed in the cultural zeitgeist is is really kind of interesting to to push people to go and look at that and evaluate it in a different way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Then, then that's where it becomes a matter of like, were the filmmakers aware of this? You know, or something like uh, The Brood, David Cronenberg's The Brood. It's like, you can read that film as either kind of misogynist might be too strong of a word, but it's not too good to the female characters in that film. Um, right. Or you can kind of look at it as uh, the female characters are really, well, the one female character is actually incredibly empowered and is, you know, the image of a pure woman in her most hideous, powerful form and the men can't handle it. It's like, I, you know, you evolve as a viewer. You know, you, right. Your tastes change, your viewpoints change, what you want out of a film changes, maybe. And so revisit some of the movies from your youth. Maybe you'll find something new. Well, and this leads to a good point. And it, uh, when we started talking about this, particularly, you mentioned Hide and Go Shriek, as well as sort of this era of movies where uh, you have the kind of the gay killer or the gender bending killer, where it, it really does not present anybody of a queer or LGBTQIA, uh, you know, standpoint in a, in a good light. But how there are still kernels of those movies that we can maybe glean something from. And I'm wondering, because, you know, queer horror has been a big part of the discussion that you have been doing in your writing and work, as well as your podcast. And that's what we're here to talk about as well. Do you think there's something to be said about embracing our problematic faves instead of just canceling them outright, which seems to be very in vogue right now. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, to just cancel something or to completely disregard it without 
thinking critically about it or without right. uh, considering context, um, I think is really short-sighted. Um, I think it's not going to help you as a film viewer, um, <laughs> you know, right. and, and it's not going to help you evolve as a queer person either to just sort of stop any conversations and just say that's homophobic or, you know, whatever. And, you know, there, I think for me personally, um, there's a power to be found even in the sort of problematic portrayals. Um, it's, it's all about perspective, you know, it is, it is perspective. And I think too, the, the reclaiming of, of movies that our community has initially rallied against is one of the coolest things that we can lay claim to as a queer community that not everybody gets to do. The idea that when Cruising came out, it was heavily protested, or when Basic Instinct premiered, there were people marching against it in San Francisco. And now I feel like both of those movies are sort of queer classics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would say part of it probably stems from the fact that nowadays we have the privilege of having uh, a variety of portrayals in film. Right. Um, we're not always the killer. We're not always there. They even make lesbian movies now where the lesbians don't die. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but once upon a time, we were only seen as, you know, the deviants um, right. and the killers and all of that. But I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I don't know if radicals, the word transgressive, angry. I'm enough to say, like, call me a deviant. Like, that's fine. <laughs> you know, what do, why do I, what do I care what the mainstream thinks? Um, but so we have the luxury of, you know, being afforded to look back at these movies and to get something positive out of them where it's like once upon a time, those were the only portrayals that we had. And as a viewer, as a kid, if the only thing you were exposed to was, you know, gays as pervert homicidal maniacs, it's like we didn't have positive role models back then. Right. You know, so, yeah, I mean, you look at something like Sleepaway Camp, um, which I would never tell a trans person how to view those films. Like, that's not that's not my place at all. What I get out of it, you know, I can see if people say like, oh, Sleepaway Camp is transphobic. I, I get that. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, it does. It does play with notions and it's the intent of the filmmaker was not to provide a positive portrayal of a trans person. Um, it was done for shock value only. Um, but then where did they go with it? You know, what is Angela like in Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3? right she's super happy she's you know (laughs) she's a trans woman and she's really happy about it yeah and i think that there's a a whole trans discourse there that i would be interested to have a trans person in our space really dig into because i think that people are talking about it but they're they're still i think we're waiting on our big expose on sleepaway camp from from uh that that angle Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a worthy conversation to have. But when I see sort of well-meaning allies, I guess, just immediately shut down all discourse and say, like, no, it's transphobic. It's like, right. OK, <laughs> if you if you're sure, ally. <laughs> well, the thing that's tricky and I think that, you know, something we share is our our careers have been built upon having conversations and and we now live in a space where some people just kind of want to have a final word without a conversation and that yeah. helps nobody right at all yeah oh absolutely it's it's you know i mean i don't want to you know oh outrage culture or whatever but it is very i think context is sorely missing from a lot of the discourse um that is happening you know for sure well, with that in mind, you've mentioned, you know, the the strides we've made, but what more do you think we need out of our queer content? And obviously that's a very loaded question, but more so it's it's like, what more do you want to see out of content for queer women? 
Oh boy. Um, uh, I, more voices, you know, I mean, as simple as that is more voices. The, the fact is that the gatekeepers, a lot of the gatekeepers are the same as they've always been. They're just kind of woke now. You right. know what I mean? Which is great. Um, but let's get more voices, uh, in positions of power. Let's and let's let's actually back up the talk with, you know, action that means something. Um, You know, it's one thing for a character in a horror film to say like, oh, uh, you know, our college coursework doesn't have any it doesn't mention any gay or trans people at all. And everybody goes, oh, that's very woke of this film. And right. then the but the film itself doesn't have any gay or trans characters either. It's like you need to put these things into practice. Or gay or trans people behind the camera. Or behind either, the camera. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that also lends itself to a larger discussion of are the gatekeepers actually woke or are they woke because there's a bottom line? And I think that there's no right answer to that because I think some are and some are not. But it, it makes it tricky. Right. It's it's one thing to have, you know, uh, lesbian characters in a film. That's great. On-screen representation is hugely important. Um, yes. But when those portrayals are written and directed by straight men, as they often have been, it's like, well, there are certain, uh, you know, experiences that are inherent to people that a Google search will not translate for you. You know, I mean, there are great films. There's like, uh, you know, the original Candyman, you know, comes from Clive Barker and Bernard Rose. And, you know, it's a fantastic film. But, you know, what is, what are black creators going to do with it? I'm excited for the remake or the reimagining or the reboot, whatever they're calling it. Um, Well, and I think you're speaking to something that we don't get to talk about often on this show, but I think is true of every queer audience member ever who has been watching something where there is queer content that was created by non-queer people. And there's just something in the viewing that doesn't ring true. And when mm-hmm. you try and explain it to somebody else, be like, okay, okay but this, this doesn't work. And, and they kind of hit you back like, yeah, but there was a gay character in it. Like, yeah, but there's a language in our community or there are things that we just know to be true because of our lived experiences that you can't fake. And that is not to say that non-queer people can't write queer stories, but maybe talk to a queer person before you do just to get it right. Like, I don't know if that's a very hard thing to ask somebody. Yeah, and also it's okay to sit down and let the queer people tell their own stories. <laughs> like it's okay. There's no, there's enough to go around for everyone. Um, yeah, I, you know, and if you have a great idea for something, like it's okay to hand over the reins to someone who's lived that experience. You know, because what happens is when they do an egregiously poor job of it straight audiences don't respond to it well either because then the characters come off as feeling like tokens and then what happens to the the straight viewer who's trying to be really accepting is they say like see when they force the gay stuff into my movie it just sucks why do they do that and it's like well no they just did a bad job with it but we can have gay characters in movies (laughs) you know right I just let, well, let, let let people tell their own stories once in a while, I guess. I, I 100% agree. I think that authenticity in art is one of the most crucial things that we can strive for. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, I feel like we're starting to get there now. You know, it's like we've had well-meaning folk who have put, it's usually straight dudes putting lesbians in their stuff because then girls kiss and it's, you know. Who doesn't like that? (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's like, okay, so they've told the stories and done a fine job and made some great films. But I think we're getting to the point now where we are seeing more people of color, more, you know, more all the LGBT community, you know, behind the lens. And I think it's only going to be good for the genre. Like it's the variety and depth of stories are only going to be good for horror fans in the end. So 
Well, and it, it's only going to be good for art fans in general, because I think that when only when when all movies are only made for one particular gaze, that male gaze, you're losing so many stories. And this is exactly what you're saying. It's like, sure, there have been some great lesbian stories that have been told by straight guys, but not the way a lesbian would tell that story. And what do we lose by having that story in the world too? Nothing. In fact, we gain so much more. And I just am excited for the day that everybody is, is welcome to the table because we should be. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've lost our actual history, you know, the LGBT community, women, uh, people of color like we've lost our actual history and our non-fiction stories because we weren't allowed to tell them they weren't deemed important enough to sort of write down we just weren't allowed a seat at the table you know? right and to an extent that's still happening um but i think in fiction especially we're starting to be allowed to to stake our claim i guess well here's here's the forward momentum now, speaking of taking the reins, you yourself have been a filmmaker and made movies. Uh, Ludlow, which uh, is a, a film you wrote and directed, I, I adore. Um, and so tell me a little bit about your journey as a filmmaker from the world of writing about horror and illustrating horror to making your own. Oh, well, once again, it just seemed like something fun to do. <laughs> 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 so I just kind of did it. Um, it, yeah, it was, it's never been something like a serious aspiration, but it just kind of, you know, you get ideas and there are certain mediums that fit it best, you know? Um, and so I've done the stuff that's the most fun for me are the lesbian web series. The two that I've done, the buyer beware and ghost of Les haunted tomb, um, are the two, they're just fun. They're just like, you know, having a laugh with friends, making fun of lesbians, and uh, <laughs> getting some horror in there so yeah it's just a good time so pure like like i if i were to have sort of any filmmaker i wanted to emulate in any way it would be john waters in in terms of like john waters and the dreamlanders where he just especially in the early days just had a group of friends and they all had a really great time making crazy movies because so. well, it, it was that punk rock transgressive spirit. You did it because you loved it. Right. And I've always admired that about John Waters' early work is they just kind of went out there and they weren't afraid to just make something that maybe would piss off their parents or piss off each other. They just wanted to make something outrageous and fun. Yeah. And we lack a lot of that in, in the current indie landscape. So I think that's a great person. Do you have a favorite John Waters movie? Oh, female trouble for sure. Oh, <laughs> I love female trouble. Uh, so good. Yeah, I mean, I I do love most of Pink Flamingos, but uh, it goes too far for me. At I admit, it goes too far <laughs> for me. There are things I am happier not seeing, um, but just anything where it's like, especially Divine, could just let loose. I mean, polyester is amazing. I just rewatched Polyester last week for the first time in a while. I watched it on John Waters' birthday, and I was struck by just how fun it is. I mean, all of his movies are fun. That was not what struck me. But just the fact that Divine's giving you this full-blown Elizabeth Taylor fantasy, and mm -hmm. I was there for it. Like, mm -hmm. so good. Yeah. Oh, God, it's amazing. Like, what a performer. But uh, <laughs> female trouble just makes me laugh the most. I love it. That's my fave. Such a good one. Now, we've been talking a little bit, and you've mentioned your podcast. Uh, you, as, as tends to be the case with your career, were sort of on the forefront of podcasts before a podcast even was a, a, a thing. Because I remember when you and Heidi used to host The Scarening. <laughs> yeah, The Scarening. Yeah, that was crazy. That was a live show. We did that live. Like that was the platform was like, it was the one that was free and we didn't right. have to edit anything. So it was just a live show. We just would go on the air for an hour, an hour and a half or whatever. It was fun and we would take phone calls and that was not always the best idea, but. <laughs> yeah, I was to say, I'm pretty sure I called in at one point. Um... <laughs> yeah. 
I'm sure you were fine. There were plenty of people who were not <laughs> fine. But yeah, we had some guests. We had Joe Bob Briggs was on. We had um, oh, Heather Langenkamp was on. We had, you know, people we knew. It was just, that was a good time. Yeah. Yeah, and that was really before podcasts were a thing. I remember when you both announced it on the internet. It was sort of this live streaming internet radio. And I was like, that's so wild. I want to check that out. And uh, it was cool to like have this show that was all about horror with with both of you who are so knowledgeable on the subject. And it was just a lot of fun. And now here you are again hosting uh, a, a internet radio show, Gay Lords of Darkness with Carla Rossi. How did that come about? Um, I had considered doing some kind of Final Girl podcast for a while. A friend of mine was like, you should, because a friend of mine listens to a lot of podcasts and he was like, you should do a podcast. So I have something to listen to. I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And I just wanted to have some kind of show that would sort of keep whatever the spirit of Final Girl is uh, and translate that to a podcast. Um, But eventually I figured out that it would be better if I had a co-host. Right. And so it was like, well, who can co-host? And Anthony, Anthony Hudson was the first person who came to mind. Um, They host uh, the Queer Horror out in Portland, Oregon, the longest running uh, monthly queer horror program in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'd known each other online and we just vibed really well. And doing Gaylords is probably my favorite thing to do. Absolutely. So, (laughs) And, and you had just met online. Yeah. uh, Anthony asked if they could show some of my horror shorts. They did a, a night of horror shorts by women for queer horror and asked if they could show some of mine. And I said, sure. And that was that like uh, Anthony has read final girl since you know they like to say like oh i was a teenager when i discovered final girl and i'm like oh how nice for you sonny (laughs) (laughs) you discovered it so long ago um yeah but that's how we and we just we just clicked we just really clicked so that's got to be wild for you to to know that your co-host discovered you by reading your work as a teenager and now here you are sharing the airtime you know yeah, it's amazing. It's a, because I think Anthony's got one of the the best voices I think in queer horror in horror um, as a performer, as a writer, all of this. And so, um, just that we kind of knew each other, I guess, before we knew each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's just it's such a thrill. It's my absolute favorite thing to do. So well. I'm a huge fan of Anthony slash Carla because I love what they do up there. And um, you two coming together in my mind was, was like the, the gay horror Avengers. It was a cool team. Up to see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're definitely the, uh, the angry gays, I guess, you know, we have a good time. It's not a very, it's, it's the show has structure, uh, but we, we have fun. We definitely, we have fun. So. Well, you know what? We need fun and we need angry gays because angry gays get shit done. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Stacy, what have you been watching recently that uh, you dig, that's inspiring you, that's getting you through this weird moment in history? Oh, man. Um, I hadn't been watching horror films, actually, because I sort of wasn't taking any comfort in people getting killed <laughs> given everything that's happening in the world. Um, For sure. But I have been really vibing on sort of more dreamy kind of horror films, stuff like don't look now uh, picnic at hanging rock. These movies that are just sort of reinforcing that we're here for a time and we right. don't have all, we don't have all the answers, you know, they, I'm finding comfort in that. Although I have restarted watching some slasher movies for a project I'm working on. So Ooh, is that something you can tell us about or is it secret? Um, it's kind of secret. I guess I will say I'm writing a book of essays. How's that? Works so, for us. There you go. So listeners, yeah. keep your eyes out for whatever that may be when it's coming. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, speaking of dreamy movies, I did make a note of this in my notes uh, to ask you about if it came up and, and you gave me a good segue. So 
I want to talk to you briefly about Suspiria because I happen to know you are a huge, huge fan. Um, First off, I mean, this movie seemed to have rocked your world, the, the, the new, the new Suspiria. It did. I had, I could not anticipate what that movie would do to me. (laughs) I knew I would like, I had an inkling I would like it. I love the original film. I love the cast of this. I was excited about it, but it really was transformative. So. Now I am going to make a statement and I want to see if you agree with me, but Suspiria to me is a more queer movie than Call Me By Your Name. Hmm. Bold. Well, I suppose that depends if people need on-screen explicit queer intimacy for a film to be queer, right? Because Call Me By Your Name has it. Suspiria is gay as fuck, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Right. I think I absolutely qualify that film as queer horror. Um, I guess it's just, do you want to see people smooching and doing it? I guess. (laughs) What are your watermarks, you know? I know. It's interesting. And I think that probably everybody's, uh, you know, qualifications for a queer movie are different. But I look at the aesthetic and the nuance and what the movie is saying about gender or lack thereof. And I think that Suspiria has so much interesting things going on with regard to the interactions between the women at that academy, as well as just how we present to the world and what we choose to show, what we choose to hide. That movie was sort of like a phantasmagorical queer beacon in the night, as far as I I was concerned. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Where I mean, whereas like Call Me By Your Name or, you know, the sort of lesbian equivalent, your Carol... I guess it's like, okay, this is, you know, uh, this is a beautiful romance that has some things to say, but that's, that's the crux of it. Whereas Suspiria, what I, one thing I loved about it is there's so much to that film. There's so much to read into it and to take away from it. And I think it's saying so much about uh, art and politics and the queer experience and all of these things. And I think it's going to get reassessed at some point in the future, I hope. And people are going to say, why didn't people like this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I I was just taken with it. I just thought it was. And I, I love also the bold choice of having Tilda Swinton play so many characters in the film. Because I think there is a performance, uh, a performative aspect there that speaks to the, the queer politics of the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just got layers upon layers of film. It's it's a wonderful film to dissect. Last October on Final Girl, I did 31 Days of Suspiria, where <laughs> every day I kind of looked at a different aspect of the movie and wrote about it. Or some of the posts were just like, hey, let's look at some art, <laughs> you know, but I really kind of dove into that film and I still didn't say everything that I want to say about it. Well, one thing I'm obsessed about, and I will say that this idea didn't come to me originally, it was inspired by an article that someone wrote in the Huffington Post. But upon rewatching, the scene where Tilda Swinton is eating chicken wings is so engrossing because of the... <laughs> they, I don't know if you saw this, but HuffPost did a whole article about just the choice to have her eat this kind of messy food while she's having this interaction with Dakota Johnson. And I thought, how absurd. And then when I watched the movie, I couldn't... It was like, it, it was so compelling to watch her eat that, that I, I realized that maybe I'm obsessed with her on an unhealthy level. <laughs> Who isn't, right? <laughs> Tilda Swinton. Yeah, that scene's all about seduction, right? It's like, she's very seductively eating that chicken wing. They're seducing and who- each other. And who could seduce someone with a chicken wing but Tilda Swinton? Most of right. us would make it a messy ordeal, but I, I was brought in. Oh, yeah. I caffed in at a chicken wing and I look like Elizabeth Taylor and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, <laughs> she's standing there eating that chicken. Well, here's a theoretical for you. Uh, if Luca Guadagnino was to continue the Three Mothers trilogy oh. and did the next film, Inferno, what uh, prestige actress would you like to see play the next of the Three Mothers? Oh, my gosh. Oh, Isabelle Huppert. 
oh my God, perfect choice. Perfect choice. <laughs> right? I, I'm literally floored that I, I was like, why did I not think of that? <laughs> I mean, you know, your lips to somebody's ears that these movies get made. Oh, man. Uh, I would love to see it. I think in my mind I was ready for Kate Blanchett, but like Isabel Huppert is such, such the choice. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Kate, Kate can be the mother of tears, right? <laughs> she can be yeah. the sexy one who wears a hoodie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so, Stacy, beyond Gay Lords of Darkness and in, in this essay book, what uh, what else are you up to? What's next? If there's something you can tell us about, if not, that's cool. Um, I would say those are the two big things. Gay Lords of Darkness is every Wednesday. Um, we're on all the podcast places and uh gaylordsofdarkness.com um writing for final girl still i'm still in the pages of room morgue um which you know i know money's a questionable thing for everybody nowadays but our horror mags our storied horror magazines fangoria's and room morgues and all of that like they need our support right now if you have the support to give right um, yeah, so I'm still kind of all over the place, I guess. <laughs> As but usual. That's that's what we love about you is that <laughs> you are you are very present out there and honestly, I I wanted to have you on the show for a long time because your voice to me has been so strong in the internet space and beyond in the time that I've been involved in this community that I just, you know, I think a lot of people who have, have come to horror in the digital era since 2005 don't realize the work that folks like you put in, not just to the discussion of queer horror, but in general, because you, as you said at the beginning, we didn't have the social media when Final Girl was started. And to find our community, you literally had to search for these things you loved. And if there were not people like you that were cultivating that space, a lot of people wouldn't have found where they fit in and found each other. And so I, I think that, you know, I, I cannot state enough how important I think that your work has been. And uh, I just want to thank you for everything that you do. Wow. That's really nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Oh. Well, thank you. And where can people find you? Um, uh, you can find me on Instagram. At Final Girl, G-R-R-L. Um, yeah, I'm still at Final Girl, finalgirl.rocks. That's about it, I guess. We're on Twitter at Gaylords of D. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, one of us is a Gaylord of D. Uh, but yeah, we're on there. I guess that's about it. Yeah. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate it. And uh, listeners, please listen to Gaylords of Darkness. Go read all of Stacey's stuff, whether it's Vinyl Girl or Rue Morgue or both. You should be reading both. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> and uh, yes, just keep your eyes and ears open for this amazing creator and whatever she's up to next. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night, good luck, and stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.